If your Bibles are open to Zephaniah, we are in the right place. Our brother Job said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more important than my necessary food. The prophet Agur said, every word of God is pure. The Lord Jesus Christ said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Our brother Paul wrote Timothy and said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so the book of Zephaniah is part of Scripture, and being part of Scripture, all of its words are important to us and should be more important than our necessary food. I have passed out to you, and I would like to ask those who send out the videotapes and the audio tapes to make sure this simple little timeline goes with those tapes. I've given you a timeline that our brother Newell has kindly prepared for you to help you understand the ministry of the prophets. On that timeline at the left, you can see David and Solomon, some of the first kings of Israel. And then as you progress toward the right, you can see the dates coming closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. The first batch of prophets, Hosea, Isaiah, Joel, Micah, Amos, and Jonah prophesied before Israel was taken captive by Assyria. So when you read those prophets, you can know that what they're warning about is a coming destruction of the ten tribes by Assyria, the capital of which was Nineveh. Some of the kings were Sennacherib and others. When you come to the next batch of prophets, you have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. They prophesied either before, during, or after the captivity of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes, taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian. That's the Babylonian captivity. God had more of an interest in Judah than He did any of the other 11 tribes because Judah was His favorite tribe, son number four, because through Judah would come the Lord Jesus Christ. Haggai and Zechariah are there under the, the mark of the temple in Jerusalem being rebuilt. Because those two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they had a very limited purpose. To stir up the regathered Jews that had come back from Babylon and that were in Jerusalem to build the temple of the Lord and to build the city. That's why they're located where they are. They were raised up by God to encourage Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, to go ahead and rebuild that temple. It was a very discouraging prospect. And then we have Malachi that shows that the nation had not recovered from all of its sinfulness, that it was yet wicked and presumptuous in worshiping the Lord. And in Malachi, we have the final words of the Old Testament, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant, was coming soon. But before He came, the Lord would send Elijah the prophet, being John the Baptist, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, when He would finally destroy His people. And so you have the ministry of the prophets. It is common for people to turn the Bible open to the book of Joel, and read Joel and not know what is going on. 
But I hope that this little page, you can fold it in half and put it in your Bible, will help you understand that Joel was prophesying during the reign of the kings Jeroboam II of Israel, Uzziah of Judah, and he was prophesying before the destruction of Israel by the Assyrians. I hope this is helpful to you. There are three prophets standing vertical, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. They all prophesied during the reign of Josiah before the city of Nineveh was destroyed, before Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians, while Josiah, a good king, still reigned over Judah. Those three go together. Nahum, his three-chapter book, he condemns the city of Nineveh for what they did to Israel. Habakkuk is a prophet proclaiming that the Lord would eventually destroy Babylon, though he was using Babylon for the time being. Zephaniah, three chapters, warning Judah that God was coming in judgment and they better repent. And more particularly, for the righteous within the nation to repent because God would have mercy upon them within the judgment upon the rest of the nation. And in that, there is some comfort for us And then the book closes out with his promise to regather these Jews. After he takes them captive for 70 years in Babylon, he will regather them. And in the regathering, we not only see what happened under Cyrus and Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, but we also see the Lord Jesus Christ and the regathering of the outcasts of Israel at the day of Pentecost, forming the New Testament church out of them, and we are included And we will have a few hints at our inclusion as we go through the book. How many times have you read the book of Zephaniah? How many times have we even referred to it? Do we even have any cross-references from the book of Zephaniah? We have a reading program for our church this year, for everyone, as a basic foundation of reading. And that's to read one chapter a day specially chosen to keep you away from the difficult passages of the Bible. That does not mean that I don't believe those passages are important. Thus, this morning, we will look at the three chapters of Zephaniah. I hope the timeline is helpful for you to realize that those prophets had very specific ministries. When you look at Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is not a difficult book. Jeremiah is quite a simple book. Look at him on the timeline. He began prophesying along with Zephaniah, same time, under the reign of King Josiah, 25 years before Nebuchadnezzar came and took Judah captive. And then he kept right on prophesying through that time as he described the terrible things that had happened to Judah. And so we get his lamentations as well because he's lamenting what had happened to Judah and what would happen to them. I hope that is helpful. So many are lost and confused by the prophets of God of the Old Testament. And if you'll get this perspective in your mind that there are three great events. Israel being taken captive by the Assyrians. Judah being taken captive by the Babylonians. And then the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple 70 years later. Those are the three great events that the prophets dealt with. Then, of course, Malachi dealt with the coming of Jesus Christ. 
But by understanding those events, you can understand the prophets. We want to look at one of them, Zephaniah. Look in your Bibles at Zephaniah, where we have them open, and we believe that these are the words of God and they're important for us. God raised up a man named Zephaniah to warn the nation that he was about to come and judge his people for their wickedness, and we will see that in these chapters. I'm going to give you an overview. Verse 1, we want to ask, who wrote this book? The Word of the Lord? So the Lord wrote the book, didn't He? Let's get things right. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time on Zephaniah, because it's the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hizkiah. We're given four generations here. His great-great-grandfather is listed. Now, we don't know anything else about Zephaniah, and really it doesn't matter that much because it's the word of the Lord. But however, this is unusual for a prophet to have his ancestors traced back four generations. And so I give you a possibility... And listen, I do not preach that word very often, as all of you well know. I give you a possibility that the reason he is traced back four generations is to bring you to that great-great-grandfather that is his Kaya. Does that name look familiar to anyone that you know about in the Bible? Hezekiah, a king that reigned 96 years earlier. Does that fit? To have four generations in 96 years. Would that be memorable? To know that the great king Hezekiah had a great, great grandson named Zephaniah that was a prophet for the Lord God. I leave you there. It says that this man Zephaniah that God raised up to warn Judah. Remember, the ten tribes are long gone. Remember the timeline? There's only two tribes left. Judah and Benjamin. And they are called Judah. Benjamin is just ignored by name most of the time because they're just included under the name Judah. It says that Zephaniah prophesied in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Josiah was a king for 31 years and he was a good king. Brother Newell's favorite Old Testament character. Josiah is the one that at 16 years of age began a revival in the nation of Judah. And at the age of 26, he continued it. Remember, he's the one that found the Word of God when he was having the temple restored. The temple had been abused. It had fallen down. It was broken down. And the Word of God had been lost for years. And he's having men clean it up and get it back ready to worship the Lord God of heaven. This is Solomon's temple. And they found the Word of God in there and they brought it to him. And they read the book of Deuteronomy in his presence. And he tore his clothes and realized that the judgment of God was coming upon Judah because they were guilty of everything written in the book of Deuteronomy. And he humbled himself greatly and had a revival. He made the nation vow to the Lord that they would follow the Lord with all their hearts. He got rid of most of the Baal worship. He got rid of the Sodomites. And you can read about what he did in Kings and Chronicles. But during that time, when, Hezek- when Josiah humbled himself so greatly, the prophet came to him and said, not this prophet, but another prophet, because you've humbled yourself so greatly, 
I will not bring this judgment in your days, but I will bring it upon your sons. And so God had mercy on Josiah and took him out of here early. But the, the wickedness of Manasseh and Ammon, the father and grandfather of Josiah, was too great. God had to judge Judah, and he was going to judge Judah. He saved Josiah from seeing it by taking him out early in a battle with Pharaoh Necho. So we have here that he prophesied in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon. Now Josiah was a good king for 31 years, and Ammon was a bad king for two years. Why would you even mention Ammon? Because it's a reminder that though Josiah was a good king, he was connected to two kings that came before him, Manasseh for 55 years and Ammon for two years, that were exceedingly wicked. The most wicked kings Judah ever had. And so because of that wickedness, judgment's going to come in spite of good king Josiah. That's why we have that first verse, and I will not be taking this long on the rest of the verses. But the first verse of most prophets is a very enlightening verse. If you read it, it will tell you who, when, and to whom, and oftentimes why the prophecy is being given. If you find a prophet that begins with the burden of Eden, Edom, the burden of Nineveh, you know exactly what that book is about. It's God's judgment on Edom or Nineveh, whatever the case might be. That's the who. To whom is this prophecy addressed? It's addressed to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judah, the tribal territory around Jerusalem. You can see that from a number of places, but look at verse 4 of chapter 1. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we find similar language in other places in this short prophecy. When was it written? 25 years before Nebuchadnezzar came and took the city of Jerusalem, ravaged it, destroyed it, leveled it, left it desolate, and took captives into Babylon for the 70-year captivity that God had prophesied. Zephaniah is one of the four prophets who prophesied before this event. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. Why? Why do we have this book? Judah had sinned against the Lord. Their grandfathers had sinned. Their fathers had sinned. And God was going to judge the nation. And so God in His kindness raises up a warning voice. And the warning voice was Zephaniah. We do not know anymore about the man Zephaniah, but that's not important. What is important is that God in His kindness sends warnings to us. And brethren, this is a warning this morning to you and to me from the Word of the Lord. We do not live in Judah. We are not worried about Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. We live in another wicked nation that claims to be a Christian nation. And we should be worried about what the God of heaven is going to do to this nation. But if we will seek meekness and seek judgment individually and as a church, we can be spared even when he does judge this nation and he will judge this nation or he is not the God of the Bible. This nation deserves judgment. It is just his long suffering that is postponing it for the sake of the righteous in it. But at some point, he must judge because there is such sinfulness in our nation. This is a warning to you and me individually. 
to humble ourselves before a God that's going to do some great things as we're about to read. And there is also some wonderful promises here. There are some wonderful little hints. And then when we get to the end of the third chapter, there are some pretty plain statements that God was going to regather those punished Jews. And in that regathering, we have to see more than just the regathering under Cyrus because the language is too great and too glorious for the gathering under Cyrus because it's showing a gathering in the gospel at the day of Pentecost and with the apostles as Jews by the thousands were converted and were put into the new Jerusalem and the new Judah where they stood in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and God loved them and was in their midst in the person of the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us go into this book. How does the prophet do it? In the first chapter, he threatens destruction and misery to move them to repentance. Very simple. Very simple. This is a man that God raised up to preach in Jerusalem to tell the people of Judah, you're going to be destroyed unless you repent. The nation did not repent. Chapter 1 is a description of the destruction and misery God's going to bring on them and the list of sins that He's holding them responsible for. Chapter 2 is God's description of His judgment on five nations around Israel, around Judah. If I call Judah Israel, you'll understand I'm referring to only the two tribes that are left. Chapter 2 is God's judgment on five nations around them because Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king the world has ever seen. He didn't just destroy Jerusalem and the Jews. He destroyed a whole lot of nations. And so chapter 2 is, look what I'm going to do to the Philistines. Look what I'm going to do to the Edomites to get the attention of the Jews. Chapter 3 tells us, if you you heard it read to you this morning, verses 6 and 7 tell us why we have chapter 2. The Lord said, surely, surely I thought that once I told them and once I showed them what I did to the five nations around them, they would repent. But they rose up early in the morning and kept right on in their wicked ways. Chapter 3 lists some more of their sins and promises their destruction. And then it offers the hope of a regathering back into that same place where they were now living. He would bring them back after 70 years. But there's more than that. There is a promise in it of the regathering of the Jews and the Gentiles being united with them to form the new Jerusalem where the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. Chapter 1. I've told you that chapter 1 is Zephaniah warning the land of Canaan and Judah and Jerusalem after listing some of their sins of a terrible destruction and judgment that's coming from the presence of the Lord that they would not be able to buy themselves out of, nor avoid, nor postpone. Judgment is coming. Zephaniah chapter 1. Let's look at a few verses just to remind ourselves that it's rather plain. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord said through the prophet Zephaniah, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. Now, when he uses language like that, it's a rather universal judgment. 
it is going to be a desolating scourge that comes through the land of Judah when he wipes out these things. When it mentions, I will cut off the stumbling blocks with the wicked, those are that's idols, idolatry. The Bible tells us that idols are the stumbling blocks of iniquity that men would hold in their hearts. Ezekiel chapter 14 is a good cross-reference there. God's going to cut off those idols and the men that are tempted by them. Verse 4, I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Chemerims with the priests. Two things here he mentions. He's going to cut off the remnant of Baal. It's called a remnant of Baal because a lot of Baal worship had been taken out of Judah by King Josiah. And when Israel left, Israel was the big worshiper of Baal, Ahab, Jezebel. Those were That was a king and queen of Israel, not of the two tribes. When they were taken captive, that cut down a lot of Baal worship. But Josiah did the rest. But there was still a remnant there. God still knew that there were people in that city of Jerusalem that worshipped Baal more than him. And he's going to cut off that remnant and destroy them. And then it says the Chemerims. Those are monk-like Men, we have to go to the Word itself to discover anything about what that is. It's not used elsewhere in the Bible. It means black. But these are black robe ascetics like monks of the Roman Catholic Church. And you know we can tell that by reading the verse. Once we find out that the Word means black, and that historically they were black robed men that assisted the priests of Baal, then it says that they were a separate class of men from the priests. Because it says the name of the Chemerims with the priests. They were their helpers. God is going to get rid of all false worship and false religion in the land of Judah and in the city of Jerusalem. Verse 5. He's going to cut off them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. And them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. You say, why is he going to cut off people that swear by the name of the Lord? Because they're also swearing with the name of Malcolm. And we'll come back to that verse. Here's a compromising religion, mixing the worship of God with the worship of a pagan deity. Who's Malcolm? He's Molech. He's Moloch. He's Milcom. Four different spellings, four different ways of pronouncing and writing the God of the Ammonites, who was considered the king god of Canaan. And you know how many times those names occur all together in the Old Testament. A very common pagan deity. Verse 6. He's going to cut off them that are turned back from the Lord. And those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for Him. Notice that in a group of people that are called the people of God, there are those that have never inquired after the Lord. Does that please the Lord? No, He's coming in judgment. Are there those that don't seek the Lord? Are there those that turn back from following Him? Backsliders. God comes in judgment on backsliders. We'll have more to say on that. We want to get an overview of this first chapter. We could go on and look at the description as we read down through these verses. The Lord says in verse 7, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. Shut up. 
Don't give me any of your excuses. Don't give me any of your complaining. Don't give me any of your blasphemous reasons for why you've profaned my worship. Shut up at the presence of the Lord God. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. The Lord's going to offer a sacrifice to himself. Do you know what the sacrifice is going to be? The Jews. A million Jews he's going to offer as a sacrifice. And do you know who his guests are going to be? The Chaldeans, who are going to destroy them and take all that they have, and the birds of the air and the animals of the field are going to come and eat those dead Jews laying all over Judah. I'm preparing a sacrifice. This is the Lord God speaking to His people. This is not the Lord speaking to the Philistines. It's the Lord speaking to His own people. You know, no wonder the Bible says we ought to tremble before Him. No wonder the Bible says we ought to worship Him with reverence and godly fear. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. The mighty men are going to be taken down because a great army is coming of the Chaldeans under Nebuchadnezzar, who was God's chosen servant to accomplish all these things. It says that it's going to be a day of the trumpet, verse 16, an alarm against the fence cities. The trumpets are going to be blasted. You didn't have a warning come across your television set in those days. A trumpet was blasted to say there is an enemy approaching. And though you might be in a fenced city, it was going to be no delay to King Nebuchadnezzar with the Babylonians. I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. No one's going to know what to do when the Babylonians appear. And their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh is the dung. What do you use dung for in an agricultural society? Fertilizer. You throw it in the field. And do you know where all the Jews went? Into the field. Their flesh was thrown out like dung, and their blood was poured out like dust. Get that filthy stuff out of here. This is the Lord speaking to His people, and let Him speak to our hearts to humble us in His presence. Let's not be here with any lightness. Let's not be here with hypocrisy. Let us be here with sincere hearts in meekness and judgment seeking the Lord. Because this God hasn't changed one whit. Not one whit. This is the living and true God. He changes not. Verse 18 says you're not going to be able to buy off the enemy I'm sending. Your silver and gold isn't going to accomplish a thing. I could comment on every verse, but listen, you can go home and read this again after this morning, and you should be able to understand every one of these verses. I'm going to deal with every problem text before we quit. That's chapter 1, God's warning of judgment upon the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. We come to chapter 2. In chapter 2, all the chapter from verse 4 to the end is describing God's judgment on five other nations. Before that, though, he appeals to his people. And he says in verse 1, Gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Do you know in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I can read that God said to Israel, I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. I made you my children. You were not the greatest nation on earth. In fact, 
You were the smallest of all people, but I loved you. I set my affection on you. Look what he says here. People not desired. A a nation not desired any longer. He is going to punish them. Before the decree, get together. Gather yourselves together. Have a solemn assembly. Before the decree, bring forth. That's God's decree. Before the day pass as the chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. God is coming in judgment. And it's near at hand. You ought to be assembling together people not desired. And here is a verse of comfort. Look at this. Verse 3. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth. Now that is not most of the people in Judah. These are the exceptions in Judah. This, I hope, describes our church. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Isn't that comforting? The Lord could crush the city of Jerusalem and the area of Judah, and though you might be living on Main Street in Jerusalem, you could be preserved. Was Jeremiah? Was his eunuch? Yes, he was. Preserved in the middle of it all. How did Nebuchadnezzar even care about Jeremiah or his eunuch? Because the Lord God put it in the great king's heart, look out two men in that city and give them free passage. And let them remain and stay. Help them. Give them what they need. This king wasn't used to doing that. This king was used to saying things like, I'll chop you in pieces and turn your house into a dunghill. You know? But here he was showing kindness because of that verse right there. Does that comfort you? Judgment should fall on this nation. We do not know when. But in the midst of it falling, if we will be a righteous people, God will spare us. Amen. We have never seen trouble. You know, we've had a few little skirmishes, and it cost lots of young men their lives in Korea and in Nam and in Iraq and other places, but we've never seen trouble on our soil. God owes us no promises or commitments that that will never happen. We've never seen it. We've never seen the stuff that happened in the destruction of Jerusalem. God should judge this nation. And this verse is a verse to you and to me. Let us seek meekness and judgment. That we might be delivered. When we turn the page, when we turn the page, it's in my Bible, I have to turn to get to verse 4. Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 4. We then enter into the five nations. The first nation is the Philistines from verses 4 through 7. He lists four of their capital cities. The Philistines had five capital cities. You read about them all the way through the Testaments. First and second Samuel. First and second Kings. But here we come to a place where they're not going to have any cities anymore. Because Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and wipe out the Philistines. And do you know what is so amazing? As you read about the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ethiopians, the Ammonites, and the Assyrians, they're never regathered. They're wiped out. They're not regathered. But Israel's regathered. Now look at how it's worded. Let's take the Philistines as an example. Verse 4, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. 
They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Don't be intimidated by that verse. That's four capital cities of the nation of the Philistines. You say, how do you know that? Read the rest of your Bible, and whenever you cross those words, you're going to know what they are. But you don't even have to do that. Read the next verse. Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy thee that there shall be no inhabitant. And the seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. We're told exactly what those four cities are. They are the Philistines. They are the seacoast territory of the Philistines. The Philistines owned all the territory along the Mediterranean Sea. Once you came inland past the Philistines, then you were at Judah and the nation of Israel and the tribes of Israel. Under David and others, they defeated the Philistines. And so they had access to the seacoast, but not at all times. These are the seacoast people, the Philistines. Look at verse 7. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. What? The coast is going to be for the remnant of the house of Judah. I'm going to wipe out the Philistines, but once I've regathered the remnant out of Babylon, I will let them inherit that land. They shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening, for the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. Not turning away the captivity of the Philistines, they're over. But turning away the captivity of His people and bringing them back. So in the midst of the judgment of the Philistines, there's these glimmers and hints, rather plain hints, of God's mercy toward His remnant that He would bring out of Babylon. That isn't difficult to understand. Let me tell you a secret. I'll go ahead and tell you my motives this morning. I'll be content if every one of you go home. And I won't be content. I'll be partially content. If every one of you go home and say, I can understand the Bible. I can understand the Bible. It's usually preached in Catholic churches in Latin for 1,500 years. And it's preached in Greek and Hebrew in other churches so that hardly anyone feels that they can understand the Bible. I want you to be able to understand your English Bible. And that's why I'm preaching it as simply as I know how this morning. If you can go home and say, I can understand the Bible, I will have accomplished something. The second thing I want you to go home with is to be humbled before the Lord God of Israel and Judah. Amen. That He is a dreadful God and that we ought to seek meekness and seek judgment in the earth that we might be spared in the judgment that should fall upon this nation. Third, I want you to sing and rejoice with me because of the last eight verses. Amen. Because of the promises God makes to His people. That's chapter 2. When you come to verse 8 and you read down to verse 11... It's about Moab and Ammon. Those are two great enemies of Israel, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Where did Moab and Ammon come from? For those of you that are reading the book of Genesis. Amen. We've got a learning church. Moab and Ammon are the two daughters by incest between Lot, the two sons by incest between Lot and his two daughters. And they were perpetual enemies. So these verses right here are describing God's judgment of them. Here's a, we're going to come back to this if we have time. Verse 11, it says, The Lord will be terrible unto them. Chapter 2, verse 11. Terrible to whom? 
the Moabites and the Ammonites, the descendants of Lot. The Lord will be terrible unto them, for He will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship Him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. There is one of those hints that the, that the prophets are known for about us. Israel didn't own any islands. These are the heathen. These are Gentiles that would be living in islands. And I think of, I think of Great Britain. I think of England, Scotland, and Ireland, and Wales. I think of the North American continent. You say, that's a big island. I don't care if it's big or small. It's the heathen that would be worshiping the Lord in the place of those wicked enemies. Philistines, Moabites, Ammonites. One verse against the Ethiopians in verse 12. Then in verses 13 through 15, his judgment upon the Assyrians and their capital city of Nineveh, one of the greatest empires in the history of the world, the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was a huge city of how many days' journey? Three days' journey. Do you know what they have now figured out? It was 60 miles around the city of Nineveh. It's on the banks of the Tigris River in the nation of Iraq. But I want to tell you something precious. When you read these verses, he says in verse 13, I will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. She's going to be filled with birds because there's going to be no one living there. Verse 14. This rejoicing city that thought she would last forever is going to be a place for beasts to lie down. Verse 15. That is impossible to imagine if you had lived then. Could New York City... Could New York City, do you know how many hundreds of square miles New York City covers and all of its suburbs? Because this was the suburbs of Nineveh, that great city, as the Bible calls it. Could could New York City become a field where animals could rest safely and birds land? Americans don't think so. You know, they got rattled when 3,000 were killed and two towers falling down. Can you imagine a city being so desolated that people, when they walk by it, wag their hand and hiss? They can't believe what's happened to Nineveh. Here, here's what I want to tell you. God said this. God said this in 550 B.C. Do you know when, do you know when Nineveh was discovered? In 1820. No one knew where Nineveh was. It had become a city of, of myth. No one knew where Nineveh was until 1820. It is one of the modern things that God has allowed for archaeology and and men to find to confirm the Word of God. Nineveh couldn't be found. And I read these verses and I say, praise the Lord! His Word is true. It's true. They couldn't find it. All they knew was that along the Tigris were these crazy looking mounds. And so they started digging into them and found a city... 60 miles around. Because they kept digging up. Well, once they dug up this mound and found buildings, they went to the next mound. It's 60 miles around it. And they've been excavating there for 180 years. Praise the Lord. His Word is true. This is why we read the Bible. Go home and take Google and punch in Nineveh and read about it. No one knew where it was before 1820. They couldn't find it. Do you know why? Because they messed with the people of God. You say, but God used them to mess with the people of God. Yes. Do all of you love Isaiah chapter 10 where the Lord says, you're a saw in my hand and I shake you? That's the king of Assyria. 
you shake a saw. I know, you all push buttons. But do you know how you shake a, how you saw with a real saw? You hold it right here and you shake it back and forth. And the Lord says, Assyria is a saw in my hand. I shake them wherever I want to. They're my axe against his own people. But he said, as soon as I use Assyria to accomplish what I need to against my people Israel, what's he going to do to the axe and the saw? I'm going to annihilate it. Go read Isaiah 10. This is the word of the Lord. Do you love the God that we worship and that he's shown us these things? And that He opens them to our eyes. You can understand the Bible, brethren. You say, are you going to do Revelation next Sunday? Pray for me. Pray for me. I know some of you are thinking that. You're so kind. We can understand the Bible. That's chapter 2. Come to chapter 3. The Lord takes up again through Zephaniah His prophecy against the city of Jerusalem, the filthy and polluted and oppressing city in verse 1. Oh, verse 2 is terrible as he starts to list her sins. She obeyed not the voice, the voice of prophets rising up early and coming against that nation. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Four condemning sins. Which one are you guilty of? Do you hear the voice? Or are you daydreaming right now? Are you half sleeping? Are you dozing while I preach and God sends you a voice? I know it's not a pleasant voice. It's the best I can give you. It's not the best He can give. He's punishing you with me. But do you hear the voice? She received not correction. When you're told that you're doing something wrong, do you want to do what's right? Do you receive that correction and are you thankful for it? Is your trust in the Lord? And do you draw near to your God? Look at those four sins of the people of God in that verse. Her princes and her judges within her in verse 3 are terrible. They're violent. They're rapacious. They're taking advantage of the people. They're devouring them for their own gain. The fourth verse, her prophets are light and treacherous. They had problem preachers back then. They had Benny Hinn back then. When I read light and treacherous, Benny Hinn pops into my mind. He's light. Look at his white suit and white shoes. He's light. Everything's a joke to Benny. He's treacherous. He lets people think that he can heal. And he can't heal anyone. Look at this verse 4. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have brought stuff into the worship of God that doesn't belong there. Look at this verse. You can understand the Bible. You can apply it to 2006. They've polluted the sanctuary. The house of God then had things in it that did not belong there. Go read about the life of Manasseh. And his carved images that he set up in the house of the Lord. God doesn't forget. And I want to tell you something. He sees everything. That Young people, that is why we're different. That is why we don't have a piano on this side. It's why we don't have an organ on this side. It's why we don't have a Christmas tree during that time of the year. It's why we don't have Easter egg hunts in the spring festival. We don't do those things because God sees that and He does not want His sanctuary polluted. They have done violence to the law. They've twisted the Scriptures to fit their goals. Twisted the Scriptures. Do you know that there are people that use the Bible to justify sodomy? Jonathan and David had a homosexual love relationship. 
And they used the verse where David said after Jonathan died, as he was lamenting him on the battlefield, that the love of Jonathan exceeded the love of women. And they... I would like them to meet both of those men. I would like them to meet both of those men and say, hey, homo, and see what happened to them. If you know David and Jonathan, it'd be fun to watch. Maybe he'd have 201 to count out. If all of you that understand your Bibles know what I'm talking about, praise the Lord. We are not going to do what verse 4 describes, doing violence to the law. Oh, verse 5, the just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. God is, God is, does not compromise, brethren. He does what is right and he only accepts what is right. When Cain and Abel came to him, he accepted Abel and his offering, but he would not accept Cain nor his offering. The Lord is just, the Lord is right. And he's in the midst of us and he's in the midst of a nation that claims to be a godly Christian nation. And he was in the midst of Judah because he was their God. There was an inner sanctuary in that temple where there was an Ark of the Covenant with cherubim over it where God was worshipped. They knew that the presence of God was to be there. The just Lord, He is just and right in all He does, is in the midst He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth He bring His judgment to light. He faileth not. When it says that, what happens every morning? Does the sun come up every morning? Does that show the faithfulness of God? His judgment does not fail. This judgment is not punishment. This judgment is doing what is right and equitable. Every day He shows that He is a God of truth because He has said there will always be day and night. He has said there will always be seasons and He shows His faithfulness every morning. But the unjust knoweth no shame. The wicked people in the city of Jerusalem had no shame for their wickedness day after day pursuing their wicked course in the presence of the Lord. In verses 6 and 7, we are told why we have chapter 2. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction. God said, surely with this demonstration, Judah is going to fear me. So their dwelling should not be cut off, so that I wouldn't have to do to them what I've done to these other nations, howsoever I punish them. Though I chastened, though I chastened Jerusalem and Judah, I wasn't going to take away their dwelling place if they would have got my object lesson. Look what it says. But they rose early and corrupted all their doings. They got up early the next morning to go right after their same course. So verses 8, Verse 8 describes in a long verse how he's going to assemble the kingdoms that's under Nebuchadnezzar to come and show and pour out upon Judah his indignation, his fierce anger, and the fire of his jealousy. Then he starts to describe a regathering. He says in verse 9, I will turn to the people a pure language. When I read that verse, there's a passage that I hope those of you who know the Messiah comes to mind. This word that starts with P. I will turn to the people a pure language. And he will... 
purify the sons of Levi. Oh yes, Malachi chapter 3. And when did that purification actually take place? With the Lord Jesus Christ coming. He purified us. Because He made us kings and priests to our God with a pure religion. Because the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament tells us that. He would purify us. When we read the book of Malachi, which describes the character of Israel after they were regathered, those are not a pure people. Go read the book of Malachi. This is from verse 9 to the end of the chapter. From verse 9 to the end of the chapter is describing that God would recover some of those Jews He took captive into Babylon and bring them back to Jerusalem. However, there is to be seen through those verses also that He's going to gather His people, the Jews, of all twelve tribes back into His church. And the Gentiles would be added with it. Remember, the men worshiping in the isles of the heathen? And so we have in these verses, from verse 9 to the end of the chapter, both the regathering under Cyrus the Persian, who said, go build my house, and Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel that came back and rebuilt a temple in Jerusalem. But we also see a grander, greater fulfillment of what took place, say, at the day of Pentecost. Now let me ask you something. On the day of Pentecost, were Jews gathered from a whole lot more places than Babylon? Absolutely! Do you remember what we read in Acts chapter 2? There were 15 different places on earth that Jews were from. That's a regathering. And that's a regathering in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a pure religion. Not the weak and beggarly elements of the Old Testament, but the New Covenant. And so from verse 9 forward, we see two things. We see the recovery of some of the Jews after Daniel with Ezra and Nehemiah, but we also see a recovery in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and through His righteousness. When it says in verses like verse 13, the remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. That doesn't describe the regathered Jews that Malachi is talking about. It describes the church of God seen under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only pure language. That's the only people that do no iniquity. The ones that are covered by the blood of Christ. You say, how do you, how do you know that this last part of the chapter is talking about the days of the gospel? Here's how we know. First of all, do you remember last Sunday? We saw that Joel chapter 2 was fulfilled. Where was Joel chapter 2 fulfilled? That I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and when was it fulfilled? The day of Pentecost. You mean Joel, who prophesied 150 years before this, was still talking about that day way in the future? Amen. Amen. You mean in the book of Amos where it says that I will build again the tabernacle of David? That wasn't talking about the regathered Jews under Cyrus, but it was talking about, oh, the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where James quoted that passage and said, this is that. Do you know what we have in Acts chapter 3? Peter said, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that spoke after likewise foretold of these days. When I have Peter telling me I better find these days in every prophet, I can find these days very easily because that's the only days this language will fit fully. It's like when God told David, you're going to have a son. I'm going to be his father and he's going to be my son. He's going to build my house. You say, I know who that is. It's Solomon. 
you're half right, or should we say you're a quarter right, because the real fulfillment is the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll be my son, I will be his father, and he'll build my house, and it'll be a whole lot bigger than Solomon's temple, and a whole lot better. And so he says, just grab any verse. Verse 18, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly. There were Jews that were sorrowful because they had not had a solemn assembly for a long time. I will gather them who are of thee, who are true Jews, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. It was painful for them to see the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the desolation of the temple. I will gather those. Did they come back under Cyrus, when Cyrus gave the decree in Ezra and Nehemiah? Did some people that were sorrowful, did they come back to rebuild that temple and that city? Yes, they did. But were there some sorrowful people waiting in Jerusalem for the arrival of someone else? Did we read about an Anna and a Simeon who were waiting there for the redemption of Israel? Amen. They wanted to see a solemn assembly with the Lord's Christ. Okay, that's the book of Zephaniah, but we're not done. How about some problem texts? Let me quickly run through some problem texts so that you can understand the whole book. Chapter 1, verse 4. I've already told you this one. The Chemerims. What are the Chemerims? Black-robed ascetic priests, like the monks, that served with alongside the priests, but they were a different category of false worshiper. What about Malcolm of 1-5? That is Molech, Milcom, or Moloch. Four different spellings of the king god of the Canaanites, the chief deity of the Canaanites, Molech. Remember, they offered, they offered their children in sacrifice to this terrible being. Solomon worshipped him. Solomon built this god a house. You can read about him in 1 Kings 11.5, 1 Kings 11.7. He's described throughout the Old Testament. These people were swearing by the name of the Lord and by the name of Melchim or Molech. Verse 8. It says that the Lord was going to punish the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Let me deal with the king's children for just a second. Who was the king? Josiah. Four children. Jehoahaz. Served three months. Pharaoh Necho came and took him captive down into Egypt where he died. Next one. Jehoiakim served 11 months, taken captive into Babylon and buried with the burial of an ass. Buried like an ass. No honor at all. Third king, Jehoiakim, three months, hauled captive and died in Babylon. Lived a long time in Babylon. Never made it back to Jerusalem. Fourth king, Zedekiah, and the last king of Judah, taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar by this time, and I really mean the God of heaven, was so angry by this phase at their rebellion, because I'll tell you what Jeremiah's message was. If you've read the book of Jeremiah, humble yourself and serve my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to survive, serve my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Do not fight him. They fought him. Zedekiah, you want to... This is the way Zedekiah went. Fear the Lord God of Israel. All of his sons were brought before him. And Nebuchadnezzar killed every one of his sons in front of him 
and then put out his eyes. The last thing he ever saw were all of his sons being killed. Four sons. The verse says, I will punish the princes and the king's children. The Bible is not hard to understand. If you, if you had read Kings and Chronicles, you would know what I just told you about the four kings that came after Josiah. That's why when we get over to chapter 3, and it says that, the, that there's going to be a king amidst the regathered Jews. Wait a minute. I didn't know that they had any more kings. I didn't think Nebuchadnezzar liked competitors. They didn't have any more kings until the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it says in chapter 3, the Lord will be among you. Because they finally had a king that was Emmanuel, God himself in their midst. Brethren, problem text. Verse 9 of chapter 1. In that same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold. To leap on the threshold, there's two ways you can enter a door. You can stand before the threshold and you can knock and someone can let you step over the threshold. Or you can jump and break a door down because you are so eager to get inside and take the possessions of the people that live there. This is describing the rapacious, violent spirit of the judges that were in Jerusalem in taking anything they wanted. Look what it says about them. You can figure this out by just thinking and reading the verse. In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Now, you can't actually fill a house with violence and deceit. You fill a house with the produce, the product, or the results of violence and deceit. And it's smashing in doors to get stuff for wicked kings. Next verse. Uh, verse 11. Howl, ye inhabitants of Maktesh. Maktesh is a word that we don't run into, so we've got to look at the word and realize our context. Our context is Jerusalem. Maktesh is part of Jerusalem, or another name for Jerusalem, specifically referencing its trade zone, where commerce was done. Because look at the verse. For all the merchant people are cut down, all they that bear silver are cut off. That section of Jerusalem that was dedicated to silver trading and other merchandising was wiped out. Remember at the end of this chapter, he's going to say, your gold and silver aren't going to buy you out of this problem. Verse 12, the Lord said, I'm going to search Jerusalem with candles. And I'm going to find all the men that are settled on their lees. What are lees? Lees is the sediment at the bottle, at the bottom of a bottle of wine that has not been moved for a long time. If a bottle of wine sits upright or on its side, there are, sediment will collect at the bottom if it's not moved. This is a figure of speech settled on their leaves. It's an English figure of speech. Settled on their leaves mean, their lees, is because God did not do anything, had not shown himself, These men of Judah had become so complacent about their religion, they thought that they were going to get away with whatever they did because he hadn't shown himself for a while. It says that in the verse when it says, They say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. See, God doesn't care. He's not going to do anything. I call Psalm 50 to be my witness about this. The Lord says to wicked men in Psalm 50, I said nothing. I was silent. You thought that I was a God like you. But remember this, ye that forget God before I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. 
Second Peter chapter three, I call as a witness where second Peter chapter three says there are scoffers that are going to arise in the last days saying that all things remain the same from the creation of the world. And Peter says this, they willingly are ignorant of that there was a flood since the creation of the world that kind of drowned everybody in its path. But now the world is reserved to judgment of the great day of fire. I call those as my witnesses against this kind of a mentality. And brethren, because you have not seen the strong hand of God with a scourge in His hand upon our nation, don't think that it's not coming. We need to humble ourselves before the great God of heaven. That's what it means when it says, punish the men that are settled on their lees. They have come down to the sediment because there is no change. There's no movement. God hasn't done anything, but the day of the Lord is near at hand. I hope you understand that. No more time at the moment. Verse 12. Well, that was verse 12. Chapter 2 and verse 5. Who are the Cherethites? Where are my men that have been in men's meetings? Who are the Cherethites? Now look at the content. What? Oh, yes. They are Philistines. Whether it was a region of the Philistines or just another name for the Philistines, what did they serve as in Israel? Bodyguards for David. Can you name some others from that nation that had another name similar? Pelethites. And uh, one more name. Gittites. Cherethites, Pelethites, and Gittites were all segments of the Philistine nation that came and served David as mercenaries. So they, he calls them Cherethites here, and he tells us exactly where they are, and he tells us what they are. Do you know when you find Cherethites serving David, it doesn't tell you as plainly? And so you get your concordance out, and you say, where are Cherethites in the Bible? And it tells you right here what they are, doesn't it? It says they dwell on the seacoast near the land of the Philistines. You should see all the pages that have been written that they are men from the island of Crete. Thank you, Lord, for your Bible. If you will trust your Bible and read it, we can understand. That's a problem text because I want you to know what that word is. Here's one for you, verse 3 of chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 3. The last clause. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. It doesn't say morrow. That's not bone morrow. It's to the morrow. Morrow. Tomorrow. They gnaw not the bones till tomorrow. This is a figure of speech describing how wicked and violent these Jews were. Her princes and her judges are like roaring lions and evening wolves. Now a lion, when he usually slays a beast, lies down beside it and methodically tears off a piece of flesh. Have you ever watched it on National Geographic? They just lie down beside it and they look like they're going to take days to do this. Tear off a piece, chew it. Tear off a piece, chew it. They gnaw the bones on the morrow. They get to the bones the next day. These men are not like that. They eat everything on the spot. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. They don't do it that way. They take the bones right now along with the flesh on the bones. Presently. What about some jewels from this wonderful book? What about some jewels? Come back to chapter 1. Come back to chapter 1. I've, I've mentioned this will be very quick. Verse 5. Verse 5. They swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. Is that a jewel to us? That reminds us that you cannot serve two masters. The Bible says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and this world system. Matthew 6.24. The Bible tells us if you're a friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. James 4.4. 4. If any man love the world, love of the Father is not in him. 
Here, this is the compromise of what today we would call contemporary Christians. We cannot be like this. The Lord must be first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Verse 6 of chapter 1. Lessons for us from the jewels of Zephaniah. Are you a backslider? Is a backslider a bad thing? The Lord here compares backsliders to those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. That puts backsliders in a very bad light. Don't take comfort in the fact that you once served the Lord, you just don't happen to be serving Him now as much as you did because Jesus said, if ye continue in My Word, then are ye My disciples indeed. The Lord right here combines those two together saying, a backslider to Me is in the same category as those that have never even inquired about Me. Verse 8, And all such as are clothed with strange apparel. The Lord was going to judge, starting at the king's court, people that had dressed in foreign clothing. You know what we have in the New Testament reminding us of making a distinction between us and the world? Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Anything to do with false religion, false worship, false people, pagan worship, pagan nations, we should not have anything to do with them. We should not be wanting to copy them, even in clothing styles. And the strange apparel that was being worn And you can go to Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel chapter 23, and read about this when Israel is described as watching the Chaldeans all dressed in their beautiful red outfits and wanting those outfits back at home. God is jealous for His people. He wants them to be holy unto Him. We better not get complacent about religion, like verse 12 describes, settled on our lees thinking that God's not going to judge because He hasn't done anything to us in a while. The day of the Lord could be very near. The day of the Lord could be one day away for you. But you wouldn't know it yet, would you? If it's going to be a car accident tomorrow that takes you out of this world, you're not going to know about it today. If you knew about it today, you wouldn't go there tomorrow. How do you know it's not tomorrow? So we fear the Lord today. That's the answer and that's the solution. Look at verse 15. The Lord is terrible. Chapter 1, verse 15. That day is a... Look at these words. This, this verse is so overwhelming in describing pain. Listen to the words. That day is a day of wrath, trouble, distress, wasteness, desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds, Thick darkness. All in one verse. That is the pain that the Lord can bring on a group of people or upon a man that does not fear Him. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Brethren, when it says, O nation not desired, it's one thing not to be desired by men. But oh, when God says you're not desired by Him any longer, that is terrible. Let us seek the face of the Lord. Verse 3. You've already taken comfort from it. That if you'll seek the Lord, if you'll seek righteousness and seek meekness, it may be that you can be hid in the day of the Lord's judgment. That's a comforting verse. It's one of the jewels of Zephaniah. In in verse 7 of chapter 2, 
In verse 7 of chapter 2, while it says he's going to wipe out the Philistines, in the last part of verse 7 he says, The Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. God will take care of His people. And brethren, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 11.32 where it says, When we are judged, when we as the church of God and the saints of God are judged, our judgment is chastening of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. There's two kinds of judgment that can come in your life. Chastening for your good and His glory. Condemnation for His glory alone. So in verse 7, it's describing the Philistines were being condemned as a nation and wiped out. But Israel was being chastened for their salvation. Verse 8, why did God pick on Moab and Ammon with such fury? Look at the second half of verse 8. Because they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Because they stood up and spoke haughtily against my people. That's why I judged them. Do you like going through life knowing that you have a big brother? And I speak that very respectfully. You have the Lord God on your side. In Psalm 105, verses 13 through 15, it says that God rebuked kings. When Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were just nomads, they were tent dwellers. They were floating around Canaan, living in Egypt, moving back into Canaan. When they were traveling like that and didn't have a city, I protected them. I rebuked kings for their sake. Have we encountered that in the book of Genesis? Did God rebuke some kings for Abraham's sake and keep his wife and their marriage together? Did the Lord take care of them? I said, touch not mine anointed. Oh, brethren, is that a jewel? The Lord is with us. Look at what He thinks about a nation that had picked on the people of God. If you have enemies that have picked on you for the truth, the Lord sees and hears every bit of it. He will defend you. Chapter 2 and verse 11. I like this as a jewel. The Lord will be terrible unto them. That is the, the Ammonites and the Moabites, for He will famish all the gods of the earth. The Lord is so jealous that when He sees a pagan idol with lots of meat laying before it that the farmers have brought in to offer sacrifice to that idol, He gets jealous. When He sees all the drink offerings that are brought in from the vineyards for these pagan gods, He's going to wipe the nation out so that there is no produce so that He can famish those gods. I'm going to starve those gods that think they're my competitors. There's not going to be any meat there because there's not going to be any livestock left. Do you love the Lord? He's a great God. I'm His little ambassador. But I love His Word. I want you to love it. Every clause in Zephaniah. When was the last time you read the book? Every clause is good. He's going to famish the gods of the earth. He's going to starve them out. Praise the Lord. And then we'll be calling unto Him from the isles of the heathen. I've told you about Nineveh and Assyria in verses 13 through 15. What a, what a glorious thing that it wasn't discovered until the 1800s. The Lord had done such a thorough job. Four, four sins in verse two, 2 of chapter 3. I've already mentioned them to you. And we've already asked ourselves, are we guilty of any of those four sins? Look at the ministers in verse 4 that we want to avoid with all our hearts. When we find a minister that has not behaved like this, but is faithful to the Word of God, we want to support him. 
And I thank you for your encouragement to support that brother on the far side of the earth who is standing up and boldly proclaiming the name of the Lord and the truth of the gospel. We should joy at supporting him. Verse 9 of chapter 3, I've already told you that a pure language was never issued to the people of Israel until Jesus Christ had redeemed them from all their sins and purified them by his own precious blood. And then they were made kings and priests before God and had access into his holy presence. Verse 11, the last half of the verse, I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride. The people of God can get proud. It is self-righteousness, and we better not have any of it. We better humble ourselves before him as sinners, saved by the superabundant grace of God. And thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. In Jeremiah chapter 7, we are told of a particular evil of the people of Israel. They knew they had the temple of God, and so they would go around saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah 7, 4. You know what God said? Ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. It does not matter that you have my temple. If you're going to live wickedly, you think that because you have my temple, you're going to be delivered and live any way that you want to? Forget it. Do you know what I fear sometimes? We know we have the Word of God. And we can get real excited about the Word of God, especially when we build the Tower of Babel and look at it and mock it. And there's nothing wrong with looking at it and mocking it, but let's make sure we tremble before this Word and not just make fun of all the false versions that are out there. There is no salvation in the Bible unless you obey it. Verse 15, the Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy, the King of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. That can't be Ezra and Nehemiah. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Israel did see lots of evil after Ezra and Nehemiah. But they didn't in the Lord Jesus Christ because we shall live forever in the heavenly Jerusalem. And so what should we do with with information like verse 15? Well, verse 14 tells us, Sing! Sing, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O Israel! Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem! That kind of joy is reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ and His saints. And it's the kind of joy we ought to have this morning. Verse 17. Look at this. This 17th verse. All the way through it. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. We sang about that this morning. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. What would make us joyful to the Lord God of heaven? The sanctifying righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ over us. He will rest in His love. He's never going to move away again from His love for His people. And look what it ends with. He will joy over thee with singing. Last night, one of my children asked, we were having devotions, does God sing? Does God sing? He shall rejoice over thee with singing. God will delight in His people so much through the Lord Jesus Christ that using language that we can understand, He'll be singing about us. We are such a pleasure to Him. We are the children that He has redeemed from the earth. The true Israel of God the true Jew, the true Jerusalem, he'll sing over us.
At that time, verse 20, will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth. When I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. That is found in the church, because the Jews have never been the joy and praise of any nation. But the people of God have been. And we should be thankful this day for what the Lord has done for us in redeeming us from all our sins and taking us away from our enemy and saving us. This is the book of Zephaniah. God raised up a voice to warn Judah and Jerusalem about their coming judgment. This is how it was laid out by the Holy Spirit of God. Within it are warnings for us to be sober and to worship Him with reverence and godly fear. Within it are promises of His blessing through Jesus Christ our Lord. This nation will never be destroyed. As we sang a few minutes ago, His kingdom endureth forever. And the enemy of this kingdom... One little word shall fell him. And who is on our side? The right man is on our side. The Lord of Sabbath. The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Him this morning? Do you believe Him? Do you trust Him? Do you hear the voice of His little servant? Do you humble yourself before Him? Do you put your trust in Him? Are you going to seek Him? And meekness and judgment. We might be saved in the judgment that our nation deserves. May the Lord be blessed by the preaching of His Word. Amen.